Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, monstrous. Oh, strange. We are haunted. Pray, master. Fly masters. I'll follow you. I'll lead you about, around. Through bog, through bush, through brake, through briar. Sometime a horse I'll be, sometime a hound, a hog, a headless bear, sometime a fire, and neigh and bark and grunt and roar and burn like horse, hound, hog, bear, fire at every turn. Why do they run away? This is a knavery of them to make me afeard. Oh, Bottom, thou art changed. What do I see on thee? What do you see? You see an asset of your own, do you? Bless thee, bottom, bless thee. Thou art translated. I see their knavery. This is to make an ass of me, to fright me if they could. But I will not stir from this place, do what they can. I will walk up and down here, and I will sing that they shall hear I'm not afeard. Hello and welcome to The Plays the Thing. That was the character Bottom from A Midsummer Night's Dream, Act 3. This is to make an ass of me, to fright me if they could. But I will not stir from this place, do what they can. We are so glad to have you for uh, this middle act, the middle act, which is all about complications and jealousy and jealousy and complications. I am joined again by Ian Andrews, Emily Andrews, and Heidi White. Welcome all of you back to the show. Thank you. I mentioned complications. That's what this act is about, right? We start with these two pairs of lovers and we think, oh, there's the prospect that they're going to retreat into the woods and yeah, Helena is going to fall in love with Demetrius and Lysander and Hermia are going to get together and all is going to be well, but that's not what happens, is it? You guys, it's not what happens. 
Reversals. So many reversals. So many reversals. So many reversals that we can barely keep up. Um, I will say I'm kind of falling in love with the actors, with Bottom and Quince. Are you guys taking a liking to them? They're delightful. Aren't they? That's a really fun, like, I think it's one of the most fun, like, subplots in a Shakespearean comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's really fun. Um, Right now, it feels like they're just, it's this completely separate line, plot line and characters. And we know they're going to, they they do, in fact, start to kind of commingle in this play. But for our first two acts, they're just kind of getting ready to rehearse and they're out in the woods and they haven't met any of our lovers yet, nor any of the gods or fairies yet. But now they come in contact and poor bottom is turn he's given an ass's head he's given an ass's head i don't know if he's poor bottom he seems like he's doing just fine here in <laughs> act three wait how do you mean heidi how do you mean well he gets taken under the wing of titania oh, yeah, 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 he yeah. gets he's right. living the dream he doesn't so, even know so many he has administrations an yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, he does all right for himself here, doesn't I know. he? I mean, if you're going to have an ass's head, it might as well be under these circumstances. <laughs> right. No kidding. This is kind of um, like an inversion of the trophy wife situation, isn't it? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like a kind of radical inversion of the trophy wife situation. It's... It's like a the guy. pool boy situation. Yeah, it's pool the pool boy situation. Or like the, the ballet. <laughs> yeah, right. But the pool boy, though, is always, I mean, like the trophy wife, he's a looker. He's supposed to be really handsome. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we get at all, that's is it, true. Emily, from, from bottom. He is about as, uh, he has kind of nothing. He should have nothing going for him. Mm-hmm. It's true. I I actually think it's beautiful that he is completely unselfconscious about this whole situation. And uh, I don't know. I think that asses and fools are precious to Shakespeare. And the fact that this isn't something that he's ashamed of. In fact, he, he doesn't fawn to Titania. He even says like, I'm not worthy. Like this is hilarious. Even not, <laughs> not knowing that he has an ass's head. Uh-huh. Just his composure and his confidence in his own being is just really great. Well, I wonder if some of that is what gives him the ability to be unafraid, even though it's nighttime in the forest and everybody else is spooked at the drop of a hat. He's like, well, I'm not afraid. I'm going to run around and sing a song. That's what I'm going to do. Like, I, I I wonder if it's the sense of self that and his knowledge of his place in the world that means he can go out into the green world unfazed. Mm. Mm. Yeah, his lines, the last lines that we heard in that audio clip, but I will not stir from this place, do what they can. I will walk up and down and I will sing. They shall hear that I am not afraid. And it, he does well by following that plan. He does really well by following that plan. Oh, bottom. Okay, I have a, <laughs> I have a question. I would like for each of you to think for a moment, if you could play any character in the play, any character in the play, and I'm going to, and I'm going to give you a second to think about it while I recount some important plot points. I want to know what character you would play and why. Okay. So 
While you guys are thinking, let me just really quickly recap what happens in two. We start, as we said, with these tradesmen rehearsing in the woods and Puck happens upon them and he transforms Bottom's head into an ass's head. So or then knoll, Bottom's friends, it, right? would a you knoll, say you? an ass's knoll? It's the word that's used. Yeah, I think it's like a play on noodle or something like that. <laughs> oh, really? Really? Oh, I missed that. It's really funny. Then, like really great friends, Bottom's friends abandon him. So, you know, Bottom's going to do the best that he can. He sings. This wakes up Titania, who is now under the influence of magic. And Titania falls in love with Bottom. I mean, this is a great comic device by Shakespeare, like the, the loveliest in the woods, Titania, the most powerful in the woods, maybe next to Oberon, falls in love with like the lowest ranking officer in the whole forest, poor Bottom. And not only is he not the brightest guy, but now he's got an ass's head. But she makes, she falls in love. She takes him away to sleep in her bower. You know, he's riding in the limo. He has struck it rich. Okay. Meanwhile, this is reported to Oberon by Puck. And while this reporting is happening, Demetrius enters. Demetrius now wooing Hermia. So they that was an absolute reversal from how we started the play. Demetrius was not in love with Hermia. So anyway, um, Oberon discovers that Puck has anointed the wrong Athenian. And so Oberon orders Puck. Fetch Helena, and Oberon is going to anoint the eyes of the sleeping Demetrius. Now, Helena comes in, pursued by Lysander. Okay, another reversal. Demetrius wakes up, falls in love with Helena, and begins wooing her. Now, we've got two men, both after Helena. And what does Helena do? She thinks that everybody's mocking her. And so she's kind of like, I've had enough of this. You guys are just making fun of me. And we know, no they actually have fallen in love through this magic. Now, to complicate things even more, Hermia arrives, learns that Lysander has abandoned her for Helena, and now she is mad at Helena. So Helena has two suitors, and her girlfriend is mad at her. Lysander and Demetrius, they're going to duel it out to prove their right to Helena. And then Oberon issues a command. Puck impersonates each of the two men in order to turn and lead the other astray until both, exhausted, fall asleep. Helena and Hermia also fall asleep. And so we're kind of back into kind of like dream world again. And Puck applies uh, nectar to Lysander's eyes to undo the spell that has drawn him to Helena. Okay, so we're going to start to like in act four, unravel all of the complications here. But now it's, it's, everything is just sort of mayhem. And I'm asking you to thrust yourself into the middle of this mayhem and tell me who you would play and why. Heidi, I'm going to start with you. What character would you play and why? You know, it's funny that I've been thinking about this as you were giving that really, really good summary, by the way. Thank you. Uh, oh. Thinking, I feel like I'm too old to be in this play. It just feels like <laughs> such a young person play to me. Such like the the... Um, the trials and tribulations of like youthful love that 
I mean, honestly, should probably only play Hippolyta. But as far as the the lovers and Titania, I I think my favorite character is Helena because she mm. has this um core of first of all she has a complicated character because she's um she un- she undergoes i think the most suffering in the play and that's uh, that's always appealing to me <laughs> um, do you want to explore that a little bit as an actress who hurt right? you I, I know right um so so many no, i'm just kidding um as an actress i think she would be just a really interesting challenge because she's got to be attractive and like beautiful enough to and to be attractive to these men, even though I know that they're under a magic spell, but also have a melancholy without being petulant. Like so many of her lines are accusatory and she's got to still be likable, even though she's continually bewildered and angry um, and hurting, but also it's a comedy. So it just seems like her character would be a really it would be very challenging for an actress to play. And I, you know, if I was an actress, I'd want to take it on. I have two follow-up questions for you. Okay. Are we sure that Helena is beautiful? No, I guess we're not. Yeah. Um, I mean, she could be. She's tall and fair. And we know that Hermia is small and dark, right? And that's the only main difference between them. They've grown up together. Together, They are two cherries on the same branch right that's the analogy <laughs> the images there were hilarious yep. oh yeah. man right also the short jokes were really funny uh-huh <laughs> um so i guess we don't know that she's stunningly beautiful but we know that she's young and attractive and appealing enough to have won the heart of who are apparently superficial and shallow young men and undergo a change throughout the play um and we know demetrius was attached to her before he changed his mind so you know Yeah, I guess I'd say she's probably a pretty girl. Okay. Here's my second question. How old is Titania? Hmm. I mean, ageless. She's a goddess, right? Yeah. How old do you think that she, if you could cast her, how old would she be? Oh, probably older than the, I I would say probably early 30s, maybe. Hmm. But I, I mean, you're the theater guy. I'm just the literary <laughs> thinker talk, slash talker. That's my job description. Literary <laughs> thinker and talker. It's right on my business cards. Emily, would, Ian, you're casting Titania. How old mm-hmm. how old would you cast her? You have you you have your young. pick of a, you would you would cast really? her really young. I would really? cast both Oberon and Titania as as young. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because um the idea like Peter Pan type characters more or less mm. with the power of a God and maybe with the accumulated experiences because they've been living for a long time, but not with grown up souls because they're uh. toying with people, right. For their own amusement, they're bored yeah. um, and they're petty. And I think it would make a lot of sense. And I think it would be fun and funny to watch it would create some of the comedic um, irony that Shakespeare is so fond of to cast them as, as, you know, junior high kids or something yeah yeah That's okay so i was just funny. thinking that i like it just went there for a second with you ian i was like yeah <laughs> a 12 year old Titania, a 12 year old oberon that like you had a couple of good actors i could i could, you could see do this. it you could do it i kind of like it that's i would go completely the other direction i would clearly cast them middle-aged 
and draw out the comparisons and contrasts between the two and uh, draw out the thread of the foolishness of love no matter your age, hmm. even in marriage, hmm. right? Um, I would probably take it that direction. When I picture them to myself, Emily, I pick them. I picture them as beautiful middle-aged people. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful, you know, like heavy makeup covering any sort of blemish whatsoever. <laughs> and yeah, as a way to kind of signal they've been around for a really long time. Yep. The, the Numenorians, <laughs> Aragorn and the, the, what is it? The wisdom of, or the, the valor of wisdom of age and the beauty of youth or something like that. Um, how old is Aragorn in Fellowship of the Ring, Ian? Do you know? You probably do know. I do. I couldn't give you the specific Nerd. year, but he's, <laughs> he died. He dies at I think about two hundred and eighty years old. Isn't he like okay. eighty when during the show? Yeah, like, during the show. Wow. During, during <laughs> the series, I'm, I'm going to have my literary he's thinker. He's eighty-seven. Status revoked. He's eighty-seven <laughs> during the events of the mm-hmm. of the Ring cycle, but um, then he rules for another hundred and forty something years. Okay. After that. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's, it seems like a really good. The obligatory Tolkien reference say. for me. Right. <laughs> we listeners, if you've not, um, if you don't know Ian, he is a Lord of the Rings. What is the word that you would describe? Fanatic seems too Thinker shallow. And talker. Thinker and talker. <laughs> Thinker and talker. I like it. I like it. If, if people, yeah, I, I push back on the expert label because I know some and their relative number leaves plenty of room for the rest of us happy Tolkien nerds to retain our dignity. I don't speak Elvish, <laughs> you know, so. Have you ever met anyone who speaks Elvish? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. That's I mean, like I don't know the extent thing. to which, I don't know the extent to which you can use it in polite conversation. I mean, he he did invent a workable language with enough vocabulary that you can converse in it, but uh, it's not vast. Okay. Right. So this person that you met has got like limited options about where he can go in a discussion. It's basically going to be trees, archery, and the Dark Lord. I mean, it's the Dark be, Lord. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to sound really pretty, though. It's yeah, beautiful. yeah. Emily, if you're going to play a character in the play, who would it be and why? Well, I'm the incorrect age given my own casting, but I would probably choose. Titania, Titania, however we're okay. saying that. Uh-huh. I think that playing the straight man to bottom would be very mm. fun. <laughs> I, I'm always attracted to the straight man. Um, and oh, That's a mercy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I just think that that would be... That's, it takes a lot of discipline to not laugh, right? Well, I yeah. out that part. Right. And that's a, that's a challenge that really appeals to you. It does, yeah. If I were an actress. <laughs> you would probably also get an entourage with you. I mean, I mm-hmm. whenever I see Titania and Oberon play, they've always got an, you know, they've just got like some groundlings that are following them <laughs> around. That sounds appealing. <laughs> Servants. <laughs> yeah. Fetch me... Um, a diet lime Coke, please. <laughs> I am Titania. And I'm sure that's what she would drink. Of course. Somehow very appropriate. Somehow. <laughs> Somehow. Ian, you're casting yourself in our play. Uh, Who would you cast yourself as and why? I don't. This is a hard question. I think it would be fun to play 
Lysander um, only because he needs to be so, 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 so earnest under the effects of this love potion. And, um, and earnestness is something I think I could bring to a stage role. No. Okay. It would be an easier, it would be an easy role to play. I think Lysander would be, um, but what I'd want to play is bottom yeah. without any question. I think it would be the most fun of all of the, of all of the roles. I no would. one chose Puck. I know. I thought you might choose Puck, Ian. Well, Puck. I don't. I, I don't see. know, Tim. You came down pretty hard on Puck last time, so I think we I were did. all. I did. I chased everybody away. <laughs> chased everybody away. If somebody offered me Puck, I would take it. Yeah. Right. I would love to be okay. So I might be changing my mind because I'm remembering the Pyramus and Thisbe play in Act Five. Oh my god! And I really want to be the Wall. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. Hold your so fingers. So. My answer. <laughs> That's a great answer. That's awesome. Tim, how about you? Now I want to take that. Now I want to play the wall. (laughs) Doesn't (laughs) actually no, I was just thinking though, before you said Helena, Heidi, I was gonna make fun and choose Helena. But right, but actually I think it would be kind of fun for to play Helena um because of having to maintain the ruse that you as an actor don't know that they're bewitched and you really do think everyone is making fun of you. Um, that like that rage would be really fun well, to maintain over several scenes. this is your cultural moment to play Helena. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. It is. This is an opportunity, Ian. Oh, man. Well, it would be believable uh, to cast me if she's not supposed to be all that attractive. I mean, oh I, could, I could successfully play an unattractive woman. Well, you could have in 1594 as well. This is a good point. This is a good point. I don't know if we're giving you compliments or insulting you. That's the kind of ambiguity level that we've got here in Act Three of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh man, you're not attractive enough to play Helena. No, is that a, like congratulations or is that? I'll take it as a compliment. That? Okay, I'll yeah. take it as a compliment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm the director in this play, so I'm not. I don't have to choose a role. No, no, you have to choose a role. I, I think. I would like to do something that would be really hard for me. It doesn't mean that it would be enjoyable, but I think playing Puck would be really hard for me hmm. because I'm older. I don't think I don't think anyone sees me as like, yeah, he's a wood nymph. <laughs> you're, you're, not, him. you're not very impish. Yeah, I don't think anyone I, says I impish. mean, I don't know. You do seem a bit impish to me, but I don't know if that's the like like playful and kind of maybe um, a little whimsical i could be a little whimsical i think i think it's the problem is the gray hair and the height are working against me neither of those things say that's a good impish character that's a good Mm. impish actor he can really do impish i wonder at the at the gender of puck i wonder why mm. because in my mind and maybe this is because i saw an excellent performance of it when i was in college and puck was played by a young woman she did a brilliant job and so in my mind puck's character is female hmm. um and i know that's that that's not so but i wonder why shakespeare chose a male for this for this character um something about the probably just little, because of the actor issue at the time yeah i mean i'm wondering if right. that's it's just pragmatic which is why it, she were 
why Puck works so well by female actresses. <laughs> All actresses are female, actually. So yeah, that's a good point you make, Heidi. <laughs> yeah, Very yeah. insightful. Yeah. <laughs> there was speaking of cultural moment, there was kind of some blowback about actress in the news recently i think or maybe that's just kind of like an a, a constant ongoing like why do we have to have actresses we're all just actors or whatever but i think with the oscars mm-hmm. something came up i shouldn't be i shouldn't be making any reference to pop the popular imagination <laughs> because i know nothing about it mm-hmm. i know nothing about it i know like there was a bank that got in trouble and that's about the depth of my public knowledge so i'm going <laughs> to steer us promptly back to shakespeare back, back to shakespeare, to shakespeare. Right. I, I think i've told this on the air before this, I'm actually a little bit proud of this. I was in New York at the Strand bookstore. And, um, oh, hold on. I need to remember. Do you usually just kind of have to pause for applause at that moment when you hear <laughs> right, <I'm laughs> like, the story? Why? This is usually <laughs> where people start. This is people, where people usually yeah. stand and like start clapping. Right. Yeah, it's just so, you know. No, I'm forgetting the punchline to the joke. Um, now I remember. No, Logan, leave all this in. Leave all this in. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm in the Strand in New York City, what? and I see a bumper sticker. <laughs> and the bumper sticker says, Hermione 2020. And I almost <laughs> bought it thinking, I'm not kidding you. You're going to be so embarrassed for me, Heidi. I almost bought it thinking, oh, man, I love that character from Winter's Tale. She is one of my favorite characters. Wow. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm a, I am a little. I mean, I think that I get that because you are who you are. But now I definitely agree you should not play puck or anybody <laughs> impish or young. <laughs> yeah, I ain't got it, do I? I just do not have it. <laughs> you could though. Just read Harry Potter. You should play the director of the mechanicals. I would that would be a really fun role. Just I need a little bit more time on stage and it's just too short of a role for me i need a little bit more time right actually it would be really awesome to have the director of the play 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 the the director director of the the mechanicals yeah 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 it really would it's a little bit like um do you guys know our town the Mm -hmm. american play Mm -hmm. from the early 20th century the stage director i love it's such a wonderful play and that character very reserved very pragmatic, you know, tells the story of the play with a clipboard in his hand. I could, I could totally see the director of our mechanicals in this play doing something like that, like walking in from the light box behind the audience. Mm -hmm. That'd be great. Mm -hmm. I think Ian, I mean, I think Emily maybe should be directing this play. (laughs) Um, So Oberon's tricks start working in this act, right? But he, he chides Puck for anointing Lysander's eyes rather than Demetrius' eyes. And he makes an observation that I want to hear you guys comment on. His observation is about the power of magic. What hast thou done? Thou hast mistaken quite and laid the love juice on some true love's sight of thy misprision must perforce ensue some true love turned and not a false turned true. I'm going to read that again because it's such a mouthful, but I just want to hear true love turned. Why is he upset that true love is turned? So the lines again from Oberon Oberon to Puck, what hast thou done? Thou hast mistaken quite and laid the love juice on some true love site of thy misprision must perforce ensue some true love turned 
and not a false turned true. Ian, yeah, tell me about this. <laughs> um, why is he upset that true love is turned? It, like, in some ways, isn't, wasn't that his exact intent? It just got went to the wrong people. Like, help me here. Well, I think when he. This is this is the interesting thing about Oberon's character to me is that there's there's two sides to him. On the one mm. hand, he's perfectly willing to do Titania um, all kinds of dirt in order to to get what he wants from that relationship. On the other hand, when he looks at the humans in the story, the mortals, excuse me, the mortals in the story, mm-hmm. um, he's moved by by the plight of these lovers. He sees that Lysander's love for help me, Hermia. Yep. Okay. Lysander's love for Hermia is true, and he wants to protect that. And he sees that Helena's love for Demetrius is true, and he wants to um, he wants to to make them come together as well. So his rebuke to Puck is he gave it to the wrong guy, and in so doing, you took a true love, Lysander's love for Hermia, and turned it false. Rather than taking a false love, Demetrius's love for Hermia, and turning it true by turning Demetrius towards towards Helena. Mm. Um. And I, that may be a little bit of a contradiction in his character that we're supposed to wonder at. If you're comfortable in, in your own world, in the, in the fairy world, um, using magic in order to twist and turn and affect whomever you, you will, then why is in this other world, in the mortal world, why are there laws that you feel shouldn't be transgressed? Um, do you guys think that's an inconsistency in his character? I don't know. I think that it could be. Uh, an inconsistency in his character, or it could speak to the purpose of the green world that within this setting, within this green world setting, this magical place, this is where reversals, this is where things are turned upside down in order to be turned right side up Mm -hmm. when they return Mm -hmm. back into Mm -hmm. uh, the civilized mortal world, right? Like that's why these lovers are here. It is to be made whole. It is to take what is interchangeable and to put it right um, Mm -hmm. and uh, to, to find order, to kind of create chaos for the purpose of, uh, taking what is looks haphazard and putting it and and rightly ordering it and then sending them back out into the world in which they truly belong. Uh, and in that sense, I think that that might resolve the consistency, especially since Titania and Oberon get to stay in the green world. And so yeah. this is yeah. their place. Um, and so they kind of always live in this state of kind of altered reality and potential chaos. Um, and, and, and they're responsible to order it themselves and then to stay and live there. Hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. Emily. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about how that, uh, I think we're having two different conversations when we talk about the mortals and when we talk about the gods and goddesses and the, when you look at Titania's relationship with bottom, even though Oberon's intention there is impish and to self-seeking, the result is still kindness towards the mortals titania embraces an ass right which i'm imagining shakespeare saying aren't we all yeah to her bosom and it's it's still a metaphorical sign of of benevolence to humanity yeah and even to her i think you're right emily i like that a lot but understanding the elizabethan audience would have considered Titania's resistance to Oberon as unnatural. And, mm-hmm. and so for 
For a woman to defy her husband, whether she is mortal or immortal, is improperly ordered within the Elizabethan mind. And um, and so to she 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 needs to be brought back into the proper order in in some um in some way and so that even might potentially have been seen by an elizabethan audience as a as a kindness to titania as well hmm. um and and that her falling in love with bottom is um an objective correlative so to speak to her unnatural resistance to oberon's authority that makes hmm. sense the word dissembling shows up in this play a few times. I know it best from Richard III's opening monologue in which he says, I'm, I'm cheated of feature by dissembling nature. And there's something about that, that nature is not often in the habit of dissembling. More often, nature is in the habit of assembling and harmonizing in Shakespeare's day in the Elizabethan world. And so I've been thinking a lot about this play and the the relationship that we're talking about between the divine or semi-divine characters and the mortals in the play. And it seems like they are in a lot of ways, um, they are embodiments of how the Renaissance world sees art, how art functions with nature. They're trying to bring, even though they fail disastrously and it leads to com comic effects, um, they are trying to bring some sort of unity and harmony to what's kind of fallen out of place or what's been prohibited in the mortal world. And I think about how different that is than how the Greek gods or the Roman gods interacted with human beings. Like the Greek gods are terrible to human beings. Of course, they show favor from time to time, but I just think about Zeus's relationship with mortal women. No one would say, that's healthy. That's really <laughs> healthy. No kidding. We're going in a good direction there, Zeus, you know? Whereas I think that Oberon would never interact with women in that way, maybe as a mistake, but I, I get the sense that there's a kind of um, a sense with Oberon and Titania, despite their own, whatever, we can call it marital conflict or yeah, they, um, they're there to do some good to the mm -hmm. humans in that they kind of inherit in their green world. Is that right? Am I missing something about the what? deities in this, in this play, Ian? No, I don't think so. I, I agree with you. Um, and and I, didn't we mention the contrast between the Greek and Roman gods and these gods in our last episode as well? I think it, we did. We I think we talked about it briefly. Perhaps. Oh gosh, if we did, I missed it. I should have made a reference to it. Keep going. Well, I just um, I noticed it as well, and and maybe it colors the way I read Oberon. Um, and maybe I need to be reminded of that so that I can see the, the God that Shakespeare is actually giving us rather than the one I expect. Um, because I do Oberon's activity in, in messing around with his wife. Um, that gives me sort of, uh, capricious, um, gods with the personalities of men vibes, just like you would see in Homer. Mm. Um, but I think you're right. That isn't exactly what's going on here. There's a benevolence to the green world and to its, its presiding deities, um, that is a call to man out of their own foibles and out of their own organized society into a, uh, a more natural and a more breathing, growing environment. Emily, yeah. what do you think? 
Well, I was I latched on to what Tim said about it being like art. And I think that's a really important element to this play. Uh, in the rehearsal that we see, uh, I think it's Quince or someone says, you know, we have to be careful that the ladies don't think I'm actually a lion. So I need to tell them <laughs> yeah. the truth about myself. They're very concerned that anyone is going to be deceived. Mm-hmm. And of course, the problem with that, I mean, even though it's well-intentioned, the problem is the art won't be able to function the way it's supposed to function if if the audience isn't invited into the deception. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what's going on among the lovers. There's a kind of deception that's taking place, and it seems really dangerous. Art can be really dangerous, but the result of it, I think we're being asked to consider whether or not it's a worthwhile result in the end. Hmm. Emily, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it is, it's very funny when they're talking about maybe we should have a prologue in the program that explains that no one will be injured and <laughs> we, we need to have a second program. And there's all this kind of explaining, which I think is meant to show us what complete amateurs they are, you know, <laughs> right. like, like we know. The more programming you do, the more like liner notes you give the audience, kind of like the less engaged they probably are going to be if they have to have everything explained to them. Um, but it makes me think this seems to me another difference with a prominent Greek. If we were kind of talking about the difference between Homer's vision of the gods and Shakespeare's vision of the gods, I think Plato's vision of art and Shakespeare's vision of art, I think, are pretty different in this regard. That mm-hmm. Shakespeare, of course, sees the extreme power of the dramatic arts and being invited into the dramatic arts in the capacity that we have to take on an imaginative world and learn from it, to be shaped by it for positive and for ill ends. I'm thinking about Hamlet's famous line that plays the thing wherein we'll catch the conscience of the king. Before that, he goes on about, I have seen some who have been so bewitched by a scene that they have confessed murder out loud. You know, this is what he's going to do with the king to kind of get the king to unwittingly confess. I think Shakespeare absolutely knows the power of the dramatic arts. I think Plato also knows the power of the dramatic arts and Shakespeare is excited by it. I think Plato is a little bit nervous about it. Right? Like, maybe the poets should be outside of the Republic. There, right. It's just, it's too big of a risk to take. Well, because and his it draws name, out your ahead. weakness. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I just, uh, it, it, the art is like in the confession, right? It's drawing out man's weakness. It's drawing out, he's, it's making him naked. He has to look at how terrible he is. And that doesn't work in the ideal Republic. Yeah, anyway, right. Heidi, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> well, to add to that. The other reason is because the stories don't portray the divine nature as good. And that was Plato's main argument, like that that the guardians must be trained by stories that portray the divine nature as wholly good. Right. And uh, so in my classes, we always discuss if Plato had been a Christian, would he have, which I kind of think he was, but just didn't know it. Right. But if he had really been, if he if he had had a good God, would he have let the poets back into the Republic? Right. Mm. And, um, and that I think is something Shakespeare is actually attempting to do in Midsummer Night's Dream. I think that Oberon is less a comic character than he's usually played. I think he's a 
proto Prospero, uh, and mm. and that Puck is a proto Ariel. That that these are that Oberon is actually intended to be fully benevolent, and even what he is teaching Titania is not mischief but justice, and mm. and that Puck is his kind of uh, amoral. And but I don't mean immoral. I mean amoral, like uh, spirit that accomplishes his divine and benevolent will. Um, and I don't think that that means he has to be some kind of staid, humorless god, but more like the kind of god that's pictured or portrayed by C.S. Lewis as as there's this jollity as well as this gravitas to. Uh, to such a character within the green world, but I, I think he is intended to be good, if not divine, if not if not good in the Judeo-Christian kind of sense. But not, I don't think that he lacks um, a moral center like the Greek gods do. Um, and and so in that sense, I think that the role of the green world in this play is to uh, to create a kind of to create a chaos that takes apart what has been put together wrongly and then puts it back together rightly, if that makes sense. Mm. So it's not just chaos for the sake of chaos. It is a disordering that's intended to bring back into order. Absolutely. That's really interesting. This may be far afield as a question, but like what, what that makes me think, Heidi, is I wonder for Shakespeare, and maybe even specifically in this play, the role that human reason plays in that ordering and disordering. Mm -hmm. Because um, question. when we watch the play, we say, this doesn't make any sense. This is all very dangerous, as Emily was saying. This right. is all very confusing. We can't make sense of it. And I wonder if Shakespeare stands there and says, that's kind of the point. The I truly so. good is not sensible. Mm -hmm. The fact that we say sensible and good and mean the same thing is a facet of our humanity, not a function of the image of God. Right. Mm. So let's reconsider what the image of God actually is. Yeah, I think this is a, a to your point. I think this is a play very much guided by a Christian ethic, not a pagan ethic, not mm -hmm. a Greek ethic. Mm -hmm. um, even though the characters are Greek, and I think that's why it's always a bit surprising when I come to this play, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's like Theseus, and like I always picture these characters as medieval. And I think that's right. because there is a medieval ethic within it, to your point. And but it is a comedy, and so it's lighthearted. It it doesn't have like the weight that the Tempest does, but mm -hmm. I think that it is comparable, just um more whimsical and lighthearted, but it has that same kind of movement towards order. Uh that is incomprehensible to the characters in the middle and causes them pain, but it is a pain that is to their healing. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well said. Yeah, that's really good. Heidi, I've been thinking a lot about, <laughs> about the kind of effect of the Christianizing of the West in ways that are kind of more, um, how would you describe it? that might feel a little bit more incidental. Mm -hmm. So an example of, um, of the Christianizing of the West in the Roman empires, the status of women improved radically and swiftly because of the impact of, because like Christ's teaching, there's an equality built into it. Okay. But there are other ways in which, you know, the effect of Christianity on the West is a little bit harder to see, but 
when you're looking for it, you kind of see the fingerprints everywhere. And this is one for me that I just think the juxtaposition of the way that the Greeks viewed um, the gods, you use the word, maybe Emily used the word capricious. And that's, that's moving into the background. The gods are not capricious. The gods might be playful, but and they might be whimsical, but their ultimate ends are our well-being. And I think in this play, the ultimate ends, I think, are for, for the right lovers to be with the right lovers and not for the wrong lovers to be with the wrong lovers. That being said, we close this act with our four lovers, the two, well, they're not even two couples anymore. It's just four people basically right now, um, all falling asleep. And so it's kind of an opportunity for a spell again to be cast or maybe for a spell to be undone. Uh, I'd like to hear from each of you at this point in the play, what should we expect from our fourth act? Our four lovers have fallen asleep. We're all still in the woods. What should readers, what should viewers of this play expect for our next act? Ian? Um, I don't know how deep a comment this is, but I'm expecting some very angry women. (laughs) (laughs) Because presumably these spells on the young men are going to get reversed and they're going to fall in love with the right people, but that doesn't fix anything because mm-hmm. hell hath no fury, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So I, I expect some angry, some angry young women mm. in, the next, in the next act. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to have some splaining to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, is Hermia going to be like, oh, you like me again? That's fine. Like, oh, no <laughs> problem. No yeah, problem. I, I can imagine work with her that. doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we learned that the day is breaking. And so it must be that things are going to be on the mend if the chaos happened in the night. So we're probably, things are probably looking up. I, Ian, I love what you said about reason. And that's going to be what I'm looking for now. Cause I actually, that's giving me a new way to look at the play that I, I think it might actually be on purpose that it's that among the Greeks who were so, who so emphasized human reason. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, in our last act, Lysander ends it by saying something like, no, no, I'm now I'm using my reason, Helena. Now right. I, but it's completely ironic because no, he's not like he's, he's completely, not, whatever else he's under the influence of, it isn't reason. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And in this yeah. act, bottom said something like, man, it, it would be great if reason and love would marry, but they won't. Um, Mm. but maybe we're going behind the reason so that in the end they can in some way, but I want to keep following that thread. Mm. Heidi. And so I am just to piggyback on what you just said, Emily, I'm thinking a lot now, even as we're talking about the role of art in the play, particularly in connecting the mechanicals in their play and, um, bottom's head and all of these disguises and each of the disguises in the play and each of the artifices and artistic interventions uh, reveal just as much as they conceal about the characters and the, and the underlying threads of reality that are in the play. Um, And, and so thinking about what you just said was so insightful, Emily, just hats off um, about how the only way art works is if the audience enters into the deception of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's the only way that art can tell the truth is if you allow yourself to participate in its deception. Mm-hmm. There's like a paradox mm-hmm. in that. Yeah. And and I'm connecting that with the 
love potion. Mm, cool. And that like the love potion isn't, it, it both prevents the right people from loving the right people and, 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 but it ends up, I'm wondering how that will play out with the love potion, right? Because right. Oberon's mm. command is make the right person fall in love with the right girl. Mm. And, and so if the potion functions as a form of art in which you enter into the deception in order that true reality will be revealed, right? That is a very powerful kind of contemplation that came from Emily's comment. So thank you for that. Well, that's a great addition to it. <laughs> Behind this play is um, we still, don't we have a wedding supposed to take place? Like yeah. We've, we've left it so far behind, right, in act one, scene one, that it's easy to forget that that's ultimately where we're heading. Now the big question is, okay, what's going to happen with, let's call it our six lovers, not just our four, because Oberon and Titania, it seems like they, there's got to be some sort of resolution there to their spat. So I'm, I'm curious in act four, we've got to start marching back toward the wedding. And I'm curious to see how, how that'll happen. I want to thank all of you for being on the show again. And I want to invite our listeners to join us again for act four next week when we start heading toward the finish line, start in, in a comedy, which Midsummer Night's Dream, I think is comedic enough to anticipate a wedding. So that's where we're heading. We're so glad that you joined us and we hope that you join us again next week for act four of A Midsummer Night's Dream. On the ground, sleep sound. I'll apply to your eye, gentle lover, remedy. When thou wakes, thou takes true delight in the sight of thy former lady's eye. And the country proverb known that every man should take his own in your waking shall be shown. Jack shall have Jill, naught shall go ill, the man shall have his mare again, and all shall be well. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.